Welcome to Trinity on Tap, the New Testament, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. John Frederick. This is 4.3, Drawing Hard Lines on Holiness. So in the past two episodes, we've been setting the theological stage for a more practical discussion on what takes place in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 12. But again, when it comes to the call of Jesus and the apostles and the New Testament upon believers to do as Colossians 3 says, and put to death the practice of sin, many of us recoil. We feel like saying, who are you to tell me what to do? Other times we might make an appeal to our conscience saying things like, well, that's just your truth, you see. My truth tells me things, your truth tells you things, and my truth is telling me that everything that I like to do is just fine. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12, Paul draws a hard line where Christians and the church often want to provide a fuzzy, faded facade. Paul argues that the will of God is the Thessalonians' sanctification. He then equates this with abstaining from, quote, sexual immorality. Now, sexual immorality is an obvious hot-button issue in the church, and sexual ethics is often cast as a side issue, with some theologians even claiming that the Bible is not interested in sexual ethics at all. Others have conceded that the Bible does speak a good deal about ethical issues, including sexual ethics, But these words are usually coming from Paul and that somehow Paul is less authoritative than Jesus. Some have even gone so far to say that only the Gospels are truly authoritative and that the further we get from the Gospels, the less authority and inspiration a text has. Yet, as we've seen in past episodes, all of these arguments fail. All of them. More significantly, here in 1 Thessalonians, Paul bases his entire argument on the authority that was given to him through the Lord Jesus, verse 2. Through the Lord Jesus. Furthermore, Jesus himself uses the exact same word for sexual immorality that Paul uses here, porneia, when Jesus himself says in Matthew 15, verse 19, that out of the heart come evil thoughts murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. To Jesus, as well as to the entire New Testament, sexual ethics was important, not incidental. Thus, far from considering ethics as something subsidiary to the apostolic faith, for Jesus and Paul, it was central In this episode, I want to consider how to approach the New Testament ethical teachings in a time when they're really being consistently treated as optional or secondary. Let's begin by reading in the text. So hear the word of God from 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you 
by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn how to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or a sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and as we warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but rejects God, the very God who gives you the Holy Spirit. Now, about your love for one another, we need not write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent upon anybody. Ah, yes. But elsewhere, the message of the Bible is love and acceptance of all behaviors as morally equal. Well, hold on now. Are you sure about that? How would you square that sort of thing with another famous New Testament text, Galatians 5, 19 through 21? Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, there goes my dream of becoming a professional sorcerer, you might think. Right off the window, I had the wand and the hat and everything. But seriously, even if you are the type of person who is sort of Hakuna Matata, don't worry, be happy, or you can't tell me what to do, if you're one of those type of people, that's fine. But be honest, Paul could not be any clearer. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, how do you wiggle your way out of that one? Again, it's the common response. The Bible is not the word of God. Jesus is. Or Paul was a patriarchal man who cannot be trusted. Hello, on what basis have you decided to set yourself up as the judge over scripture? Can you say anything with certainty once you've done that? Is it not the case that you have made scripture into a buffet line where you can just pick and choose what you like and ignore the rest on the basis of a criteria which you create? No, 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 we mustn't do that. Another thing to recognize is that sexual immorality, which is the focus of 1 Thessalonians, and a host of other related vices listed in Galatians 5 
are things that destroy happiness, not increase it. If we find ourselves, you know, stomping our feet with one hand on our hip and the other hand wagging a shaming finger at God, we are really delusional. Adultery kills joy. Promiscuity erodes intimacy and human dignity. Drunkenness ruins lives and endangers ourselves and others. God is not a prude because he prohibits these things. God's discipline is not a buzzkill, it's a blessing. Still, you'll hear Christians who refuse to submit to the authority of Jesus and refuse to submit to the authority of the Bible saying things like, what's the big deal about sexual behavior? What's the big deal about porn? What's the big problem, really? I mean, come on. It's the 21st century. What's the big problem with sleeping around a bit before you settle down later in life? Why not have some fun while you're young? The problem is sin kills your soul. It assaults your body. It separates you from the kingdom of God. Paul argues in this manner in 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20, when he exhorts the Corinthian church, flee! Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? And hear this. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The price that was paid to rescue us from death, destruction, and separation from God was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah speaks of the sin-atoning, substitutionary death of Jesus over 500 years before Jesus was born. Isn't that amazing? Feel the weight of this. Feel it. Reckon with the price that was paid to ransom you from the power of sin and death and to bring you into God's kingdom of his beloved son, in whom you have redemption, the forgiveness of all your sins. Isaiah writes, again, 500 years before Jesus was even born, but he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The word iniquity in this passage refers to our sin. The Lord has laid our sin upon him. We may not understand it. We may not like it. But the power of sin, the devastation of sin, the total destroying force of sin was exhausted and extinguished in the death of Jesus. And the result and effect of sin was defeated and deleted by Jesus' glorious resurrection. But my conscience tells me I'm okay, many will still say. But according to 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, 
the consciences of those who do not walk according to the Spirit are not clear. They're not dependable. They are seared and defiled. Hear the text. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Likewise, in the New Testament epistle of Titus 1 verse 15, we read this, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Jesus himself argues in Matthew 15, verses 18 through 20, that whatever proceeds from the heart defiles a person. He continues, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. If you ask many people nowadays that say, out of my heart comes only pure goodness. But Jesus says, out of your heart come all the imaginations of sin. That is what comes out of us when we are left to our own devices and it kills us. And the New Testament and the teaching of Jesus is not that human beings are basically good. And if they just listen to their hearts and follow their consciences, they'll do the right thing. And if not, no worries. Because holy living, ah, it's not that important. According to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, we need a transformation of the heart. And this can only be achieved by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel prophesies about the future indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is now a reality for Christians. He writes in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, and hear this, this is way before the New Testament. This is what he prophesies. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you and I will remove from you your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. After connecting the dots from faith to faithfulness, Paul draws hard lines when it comes to holiness. But these lines are not boundaries that are meant to enslave us. They are the moral framework of faithfulness that sets us free. Hear the word of God from Romans 6, 15 through 23 on what it's like to be a slave to sin and to be now freed through righteousness. Paul says, what then? Should we sin because we're not under the Jewish law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, having once been slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. 
and that you, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you were once presenting your members as slaves to impurity and to greater and greater iniquity, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness for sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to things of righteousness. So what advantage did you get from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and enslaved to God, the advantage you get is sanctification. The end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is the eternal life that comes in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's powerful. You know, as I was talking to my six-year-old son and correcting him on something, and he was taking it really personally, I tried to be gentle and compassionate. And I said to him, you know, man, it's okay. It's okay. I love you. I don't expect you to be perfect. Nobody's perfect except for Jesus. And, you know, I expected his response to be one of relief. But he protested, hey, how dare you? And I said, son, that's good news. I love you. I'll never stop loving you. There's nothing you could do to make me stop loving you. I'm so glad every day that you're my son. And he said, but why did you say that mean thing to me? And so I responded, all I said is that you're not perfect. And neither am I. And neither is mom. Neither is anyone except God. And he shouted again, hey! And then I realized he's only six. He doesn't even know what I mean by the word perfect. And so I asked him, what does not being perfect mean to you? And his response, it gave me a lot of clarity. He said, dad, being not perfect means that I'm not any good. And man, that cut me to the heart. And I was then able to explain to him that my expectations and God's expectations of him are not that he would make zero mistakes ever, which is what it means to be perfect, but that when he makes mistakes, he would learn through them. He'd become better and better. He would become happier, more complete, more able to love like God loves. And perhaps we need that reminder too from time to time, that God does not desire to steal our joy he desires to increase it. That God does not aim to hinder our happiness, but to lead us on the way to its true and abiding abundance. That God does not expect instantaneous perfection of us, but in his faithfulness, in his grace, by his spirit, he leads us like a good father on the path to wholeness and completion through a life of holiness. As we conclude today, I invite you to focus on passages cited in this episode, especially Romans 6, 15 through 23, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27, Galatians 5, 16 to 26, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12. I want you to prayerfully discern where God is calling you 
you personally, to mortify the flesh, to turn away from slavery to sin into the freedom, the freedom that comes through faithful obedience to him by the power of the Spirit. I'll be praying for you, pray for me, and I'll catch you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.